Hi, this is Albert. And this is Luke. Today is Monday, the 1st of February. Welcome to the Telescope Investing Podcast. Last week, we had a new story about what's happening with GameStop. And in that story, you mentioned a few terms like short selling and using options. So this week, we think we'll spend some time talking about some of these concepts and explaining what they are and some of the pitfalls you might get into if you decide to trade in these things. A lot of investors fueled by the fervor around investing in GameStop have dived in with both feet, perhaps without fully understanding what it means to go short, what it means to be trading on margin, what it means to be buying or selling options. We don't really do these things and we're definitely not experts in this space, but we know a little bit about it. Probably I'd say we know enough to know that it's not for us. So we thought, as Albert said, we'd use today's episode to give them a bit of an overview, maybe talk about the pros and cons and help our listeners make a more informed choice. We'd like to reiterate that our preferred way of investing is to buy and hold, basically to buy really good companies and hold for the long term. We think that this is the least stressful way of getting rich. We definitely prefer to get rich slow. The trouble with these get rich quick schemes is you can often get poor quick as well. As they say, there's no free lunch in investing. Yeah. So Luke, we received an interesting email from one of our listeners this week. We did. Uh, it's always good to dive into the mailbag from time to time. So just yesterday, we heard from one of our new subscribers, Pushvinder. He emailed to say that when he found the podcast, he realized that our 2021 model portfolio was already pretty close to some of his own holdings. Pushvinder, that's great. I guess ultimately we're all tapping into similar sources. And so for sure, we're going to run into the same investments. And particularly if you're trading mega trends and looking at the changes in society, we think there's a fairly small number of standout companies that are at the forefront and will benefit greatly from those trends. So not surprised that there are many other investors in the same names. Yeah, Pushvinder also mentioned that he's based in the UK, but he mainly trades in US stocks. He said he traded some UK stocks, but it just wasn't for him. And I tend to agree. I think the UK is a slightly more sedate market. I guess we look for companies that we think have world-changing potential. I think there's a really interesting startup scene in London, and I found a number of great venture capital opportunities. But the trouble is, if a company really shows it's got potential, it tends to get acquired. That's actually happened to two of my VC opportunities. They get acquired before they float. So I guess the funnel from venture capital stocks into listing on the pink sheets and then maybe on one of the bigger exchanges, the best quality companies don't go directly to market like that. The best quality UK companies generally get acquired by a big US name. I've got a number of UK stocks in my portfolio, but I never look at them because they hardly ever move. I bought them in like early 2000s and they're just sitting there, you know, pumping out dividends and I just don't look at them. We found our best investments looking in North America and ideally looking for companies that list in the US, but trade overseas. Great international companies like Mercado Libre and C. Yeah, most of my investments are either US stocks or China stocks. And I find these offer the best growth opportunities. And it's actually really easy to trade internationally if you're in the UK. You can still do that through your ISA, which is a tax-sheltered investment account. The only thing I'd say to watch out for are the increased fees on FX. If you're buying US quoted stock, but you're holding your cash in sterling, then you've got to face an FX fee when you buy. And then if you sell an FX fee again to turn the dollars back into sterling. 
and that can really add up. And Pushvinder, since your portfolio is quite similar to our Model 1, we wish you the best of luck. And actually, these 15 stocks in our 2021 model portfolio, Albert and I will be tracking them throughout this year very closely because we're invested in them ourselves. So if there's any significant news or something to watch out for, we'll use future podcast episodes this year to highlight it. Hopefully that helps our listeners with their own due diligence and portfolio monitoring. Thanks again, Pushvinder, for the email. So Luke, what's the first alternative investment you want to talk about that could get you in trouble? I think any conversation around this topic probably has to start with the category of penny stocks. Just to explain what we mean by a penny stock, these are generally companies that are trading with a share price under around $5. Occasionally, they can be literally pennies and cents. They can be minute. Now, the interesting thing about this is actually the stock price is pretty much an irrelevant number. The much more important number that an investor should pay attention to is the market cap. The market cap is the value of the whole company. The stock price is just a made up number that relates to the number of shares that have been issued. So an investor shouldn't really pay attention to the stock price itself. It doesn't tell you a great deal about the company. But what would you say to the investor who says that companies have to start somewhere? They'll have to start small and they will grow to a bigger company later. So you're right, Albert. You know, these penny stock companies are generally listed on one of the smaller markets, what are known as the pink sheets. And because they're listed in a less mature market, often there's much less information available about them. They're often speculative, volatile, and much higher risk than investing in a more mature company that's better understood and frankly, more transparent. Actually, I hear that the vast majority of stocks are small cap stocks. But I guess there's a distinction between small caps and penny stocks. As an example of a small cap in our model portfolio, we've got Magnite. So they're trading at a market cap of, I think, around $4 billion. So they're a small cap company. They're going to be volatile. They've got significant upside potential, but also they're early in their journey. You know, they could go to zero, but they're pretty well understood company because they're still listed on a real market. They wouldn't really fall into the category of penny stocks in my mind, which are often pretty illiquid, i.e. they don't get traded a lot. There's not a lot of volume. Uh, there's not much information about them. And I think the key thing is they're really open to manipulation. Have you heard of this term of boiler room scam? Only from the film starring Vin Diesel. <laughs> I've not seen that. I, was, I thought you were going to say Wolf of Wall Street. That's like the famous boiler room scam movie. No, there's a film called Boiler Room starring Vin Diesel. You might enjoy it, actually. I think I'm done with your movie recommendations. After I lost half my life watching Smallville, I'm not, I'm not going near anything you recommend again. Hey, <laughs> that was as much your fault as mine. <laughs> and then you try to lure me into watching Arrow as well. What's wrong with you, man? <laughs> actually, Luke, traditionally, a market cap of $4 billion US dollars is usually considered a mid-cap, not a small cap. But I guess these days, it is relatively small. When I think about penny stocks, I'm thinking about companies under half a billion US dollars. I had some experience investing in penny stocks. I think I mentioned it in the earlier podcast as one of my financial mistakes was too much trading and too much trading in penny stocks at the start of my investing life. And I'd look back at some of the stocks that I invested in and I wanted to see where they are now. And I'll just list a few of them. There was one called Managed Support Services. I have no idea what that did. And in the end, I lost 95% of my investment. And I think the company is now delisted. I invested in a company called Gold Shield, which I assume had something to do with gold. I lost, <laughs> I lost 19% on that. That's been delisted. Uh, a company called iTrain, I lost 42%. No idea what that did either. 
So what was your thinking back then? Can you put yourself back in the 20 something year old Albert shoes? Why were you buying these companies not having any idea what they did? It was probably because I, I read a stock tip somewhere, either in a newspaper or in a, a local rag like the standard. And I just took a punt, hoping for a quick win so I can get out and reinvest in a different stock. And as you can see, I didn't make much money. I lost quite a lot. Yeah, as you say, all these companies delisted. They effectively went to zero. I guess this is classic boiler room scam. Someone's released some news. Back then it wasn't Wall Street bets. It was the newspaper. And a load of green investors threw their cash in. And the guys spreading the story made bank and got out quick. Yeah, I didn't do much research back then. I was reading stock tips from the newspaper, from the guy in the office. Anything I can get my, my hands on as a, as a stock tip, hoping to get rich, but never worked out. Well, I don't think your story is unique. I'm pretty sure most investors started out in that space. As I said in the earlier podcast, I was lucky that I didn't invest much in those days. So I didn't lose much in total amount of money, but it was a good lesson to learn though. And since then, I don't dabble with penny stocks anymore. Well, I guess we've both grown up and we've earned our stripes a little bit and they're definitely not for us. Do you think penny stocks have a place in a balanced portfolio? Well, it's possible that some of these penny stocks can grow into the next 100 bagger, for example. And if you know what you're doing, if you have expertise in a particular company, you might be able to choose that one stock out of thousands that will make it. But unless you have that knowledge, it's a gamble. It's just like a wild bet. And also, you know, without stepping into the world of insider trading, if you understand that industry, maybe you could invest successfully in penny stocks in a very niche industry that you have a lot of information on or you understand. You're not using non-public information, but you're really doing your homework and your due diligence before you make that stock investment. You know, as you say, for a lot of these small companies, it's really difficult to get accurate information and really assess their potential as businesses going forward. Well, let's, uh, let's get off penny stocks and talk about another roller coaster investment opportunity. I thought I'd pick up on the concept of trading on margin. Have you ever traded on margin, Alp? I haven't. I believe when you trade on margin, you're basically borrowing the money from the bank and using that to invest. Yeah, exactly. You post collateral and then you have to pay back interest on the money you've borrowed. It's kind of like a mortgage in some ways. Like most people, if they buy a house, they take out a mortgage. So the bank lends them maybe 60, 70% of the value of the house to enable them to buy the property and live there. And then you pay interest every month on your mortgage and the bank have got the right to repossess the home if you don't keep up the mortgage. So margins, similar, not quite the same thing, but quite similar to a mortgage. You could think of it that way. Actually, I remember a few years ago, I considered borrowing money from the bank, getting an unsecured loan to invest in the stock market. I was convinced that I could achieve a higher rate of gains than the interest that they were charging me. Luckily, I came to my senses and never really took that forward. Years ago, margin trading wasn't available to individual investors, but it's definitely more popular these days. With just a few thousand dollars, you can create a margin trading account on platforms like Robinhood. I think their minimum is about $2,000 to have Robinhood Gold, which allows you to have a 50% margin on your trades. So you can do what you are planning to do. And if you've only got a couple of thousand dollars, well, you can kind of double that in terms of the number of stocks you can buy. And what did they use for collateral on Robinhood? So that original 2000 bucks to get you started. So you, you're posting some of that as your margin and the stocks you buy, they're kind of collateralized as well. So what actually happens is you might get what are called margin calls from your broker. If a stock is really volatile and swinging around, if the stock price dips substantially, and if the collateral you've posted, i.e. the money you've got in that account that's leveraged, if the stock price goes down too far, 
then your broker might force you to post extra money, like pay some more money into the account to cover that lower position. And the trouble is, if you can't meet the margin call, the broker is in their right to sell your stock. And that's outside your control. They're selling at a lower price, locking in the loss. And trading on margin can literally wipe out your account, wipe you to zero. That's another good film, Margin Call. Have you seen that? Uh, years ago. Kevin Spacey, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a more relevant recommendation than your dodgy Vin Diesel option. I recommend both. Actually, I read a story this morning. As the story about GameStop was evolving, a lot of people wanted to watch films about Wall Street. Apparently, they've shot up in the charts on iTunes for rental. It's interesting that the general public are educating themselves, perhaps, by watching some of these movies and understanding a bit more about what's going on. The Big Short, I think, is a really great movie in this space. That would definitely get my recommendation. And actually tells you quite a lot about what's going on behind the scenes. It's like people watching Contagion when the pandemic started, right? I got halfway through that at the beginning of the pandemic and I abandoned the movie. It was making me too depressed. Too scared more like. <laughs> Let me close out the margin topic because there was one little anecdote I noticed on Reddit the other day while researching for the podcast. And it were a couple of users who found something they call an infinite money cheat code on Robinhood. An infinite money cheat code is like gamer speak for ways of generating infinite cash in a video game. Well, these guys found out how to do it for real on the Robinhood platform. And they were basically turning their $4,000 initial deposits into $1 million positions. Safe to say it didn't end well for most of them. Robinhood closed out the positions at a loss. The investors lost their entire stake. But it's fair to say that because of that bug, Robinhood took a pretty substantial write down as well. That doesn't sound good for anybody. I guess the only thing it did for them was earn them karma on Reddit in the Wall Street Bets group. So moving on to another way to trade. If you think that a price of a stock will go down, you can do something called short selling, which is basically selling a stock you don't own with the intention of buying it back at a cheaper price and pocketing the difference. Albert, how can you sell something you don't own? Well, typically to short a stock, you need to borrow the stock from somebody, then you sell the stock and then at the right time you buy it back and then you return that stock back to the person you borrowed it from. Sounds simple, right? Sounds flawless. Can't go wrong. Absolutely. However, you do have to pay the person to borrow the stock. That's one thing. Also, if the price of the stock goes up, you have to buy the stock back at a higher price than you received, thereby making a loss. So what happens if you just run out of cash and you can't afford to buy back the expensive stock and repay it? Well, in order to do a short sell, you need to have some money in your margin account so that if you can't meet that margin, your brokerage will probably just automatically buy the stock back for you and return it back to the lender. Yeah, so again, similar to the margin trading story, it's out of your control. If the stock price moves in a direction you don't want, you could find yourself being forced to exit the position at a significant loss, maybe everything. Yeah, so when you buy a stock, you could say that your downside is limited to the amount of money you pay for that stock, but your upside is unlimited because the stock price can double, triple, can even go up 100 times. But if you short a stock, it's the other way around. Your upside is limited to the amount that you received for the stock, but your downside is potentially unlimited as the stock keeps on rising and you have to pay that higher price just to return that stock. Yeah, and I guess this happened to a number of big institutions. These hedge funds in the last few weeks around the GameStop story, they were getting their shorts crushed by the increasing prices of GameStop and AMC and some of these other stocks. And it's actually wiped out at least one big firm. Yeah, that was called a short squeeze where short sellers were forced to close out their positions by buying the stock, which increases the stock price even more and then causes other short sellers to close their positions. You know, I was chatting to someone on Twitter about this the other day, and I kind of likened 
shorting to playing the don't pass in craps. Have you ever played craps before? We have. We played it in Vegas. Uh, at Macau. We had a wild run on craps in Macau, didn't we? With our buddy Shen. Yeah, we did. I believe he was on a roll. I can't remember what the situation was, but basically you couldn't lose for about half an hour. And the great thing about craps is you kind of play like a team. Everybody's playing the pass line. So you're hoping the shooter, the guy throwing the dice, is going to hit points because then you all win together. But going short is a, like a different craps bet called the don't pass. And if you bet on the don't pass in craps, you're celebrating when everyone else is losing. And when they're winning, you're losing. And it's really emotionally grim. I don't know why anyone would play the don't pass. We've got one buddy, Mike, who plays the don't pass, but he loves to be the villain in the story. That sounds like Mike. Yeah. <laughs> Some people like Elon Musk think that shorting stocks should not be allowed. Well, other people think it's necessary for efficient markets. There are some uses for short selling. For example, if you suspect that there's corporate fraud going on and you think the company will go bankrupt, short selling is one way to shine the spotlight on that company for it to be investigated. Yeah, I guess that's the whole business model of companies like Citroen Research. They short the hell out of a company and then release the bad information that they've dug up. I believe they have said recently that they, they will stop releasing short reports after all the hassle they received from GameStop. So in general, there are reasons for shorting a stock, but I would say you must have much higher conviction that the stock will go down before you short it, much higher than you would need for buying the stock. Yeah, you know, for me, it's just too emotionally draining to think about those kind of products. I'd much rather find good quality companies, invest in them, and let time and compound interest do its thing. I agree, Luke. There are so many opportunities out there. Why would you put yourself in a situation where you could lose a fortune? Well, should we talk about another alternative investment? And maybe this one's a little bit different to the first two. This is cryptocurrency. Have you got any crypto, Albert? I haven't. I know that you have some. Not a huge amount. I've got maybe half a percent of my portfolio in Ethereum. So pretty small number. I bought that a couple of years ago, mostly to understand Ethereum a bit better. Yeah, the main reason why I don't have crypto is I don't understand it. I tried to read up about it. I just don't really understand where they get their value from. Before we go too deep, let's just quickly summarize what cryptocurrencies are. The whole idea of Bitcoin and its like was to make transacting more efficient, try and improve the integrity of information, uh, reduce friction and costs and increase transparency. And definitely the underlying technology of the blockchain is really interesting and has a lot of really positive applications. But I think the currencies built on top of blockchain, like Bitcoin, have got a number of pitfalls, a number of things that an investor has to be really wary of. This is a huge market. Cryptocurrency just a few weeks ago, I think, topped $1 trillion. That's bigger than the combined value of PayPal, MasterCard, and Visa. That's a huge amount of value in crypto. I saw that Bitcoin had a huge rally a few weeks ago. And even in January, it's gone up almost 50%. Is that right? I don't really track it. I think it did. And then I think it took a bit of a bomb and it dumped quite a significant percentage. And now it looks like it's going back up again. This is characteristic though of a highly volatile investment. The price swings wildly and in unexpected ways. Well, I've also heard stories about people who have Bitcoin and then losing the key. There was a story on Twitter a few weeks ago about this guy who had two guesses left for his digital wallet password. If he gets it wrong, he loses about $250 million. I think the main thing to watch out for if you're invested in any cryptocurrency, you've got to guard your private keys very, very securely. If somebody else gets access to them, you've effectively lost your wallet. 
And you can lose your keys in a number of ways. When you buy cryptocurrency, you don't actually have to keep the keys on your local computer. You can rely on an exchange to hold your currency for you. So a company like Coinbase are quite a popular exchange. But the trouble with these exchanges is even they can get hacked despite all the money they plow into trying to maintain their security. There was a really famous one a couple of years ago called Mt. Gox. And they were hacked, losing 850,000 Bitcoins of their customers' money. That's nearly $30 billion worth of value at today's price. And I think the reason for the Mt. Gox hack was a combination of theft, fraud, mismanagement. But if you don't have your keys personally, if you're relying on an exchange to keep them for you, then you're kind of at the mercy of them getting their security and their procedures right. Do you know how Mt. Gox got its name? Uh, I don't know. Well, Mt. Gox, M-T-G-O-X, stands for Magic the Gathering Exchange. <laughs> I believe it started as an online platform to exchange Magic the Gathering cards. Another card game? Awesome. That's cool. I had no idea. They pivoted from Magic the Gathering cards to Bitcoins. That's pretty cool. I believe so. Then they got hacked. Well, those Magic the Gathering cards, even they can sell for huge amounts of money, right? Now, I think you're thinking about Pokemon cards. Or maybe both. We're not going to get into buying collectibles, but I guess that's another potentially dubious investment opportunity. Not if you know what you're doing. <laughs> you keep chasing that Charizard, whatever the thing is. Charizard. But so I was rambling about uh, losing your private keys. Well, you might have your keys on an exchange like Mt. Gox and they get compromised, but you could also keep them yourself. And like you said, the guy who's forgotten the password to his hard drive, but there's also a really, not for him, but pretty funny story about a guy in, I think, Wales or somewhere in the UK who had $250 million worth of Bitcoins in a wallet where the private keys were on a hard drive. And he threw the thing out a couple of years ago while having a tidy up completely forgetting the Bitcoins were on there. And now he's been pestering the local council to allow him to send a crew into the rubbish tip to try and excavate and find this hard drive so he can recover the keys. Yeah, I remember reading about that. I think he's offered a reward of 25% of the Bitcoin's value to anybody who finds that hard drive. That's quite a big reward for digging around in shit. For sure. Good luck to the guy. I think he's probably lost the money. You know, apparently in recent research I read, 20% of all Bitcoins are believed to be lost. And that's forever, right? There's no way to recover these Bitcoins unless you find those codes. Yeah, exactly. Or perhaps until quantum cryptography, they're gone. Surely by the laws of entropy, eventually 100% of Bitcoin will be lost. <laughs> That's a really interesting idea. Maybe, maybe, because they are a limited money supply. Eventually, there'd be just one person holding one Bitcoin, and that's it. <laughs> nice. I like it. Well, anyway, so you don't have this unlimited liability the way you do with margin calls and going short. Bitcoins, if you lose your keys, you lost your Bitcoins, you lost your Ethereum, but your loss isn't any greater than that, other than perhaps the emotional loss every morning when you wake up and realize you could have been a millionaire. So because of that limited loss aspect, I think cryptocurrency could have a place in an investor's portfolio. As I say, I've got about half a percent. I wouldn't mind allowing that to increase a little bit, but I'm not going to let it get out of hand. I'm certainly not going to let it grow beyond my normal diversification limits of maybe six or seven percent of a balanced portfolio. But it's really interesting because even a few years ago, buying and selling cryptocurrencies was quite difficult. But these days, you can use apps like Square and PayPal to trade in Bitcoin much more easily. It's quite interesting that it's all started with a retail investor and now the institutions get involved. And that's maybe one of the reasons why Bitcoin has increased in value so much in the last year or so. Yeah, I agree. This is an immature market today, but it's becoming more mature. One of these cryptocurrencies could genuinely be the future of money, the reserve currency of the world in the future. Yeah, I said at the beginning that 
I don't have any crypto, but I won't rule it out completely. You know, maybe when I read up about it and I understand a bit more, I'll be comfortable maybe allocating 1% of my portfolio to it. Well, why don't you tell us about something that you wouldn't touch with a barge pole? I think you're going to close out the scary investments with a bit of an update on trading options. Yeah. So options are a type of derivative, which is a financial security whose value depends on something else. So just to explain options a little bit more, there are generally two types of options. One is a call option, which gives you the option, but not the obligation to buy a stock at a certain price by a certain date. And then there are put options, which gives you the right, but not the obligation to sell a stock at a certain price by a certain date. So in general, if you think a stock will go up, you'll buy a call option. And if you think the stock will go down, you will buy a put option. But in fact, you can either buy or sell options. So as the option buyer, you have the right to exercise the option if you want to, but as the seller, if someone exercises an option, you have to pay up. So that sounds pretty complex, Albert. Can you make it a bit simpler for us? I'll try and use an example. So if I buy a call option that says I can buy a shares of Apple at $1,000 per share, here's a, just a silly example, and the current price is 900 it doesn't make sense for me to exercise that option, right? Because I have to buy that the Apple stock at a higher price that I can get it from the market. But if the market price increases to above a thousand, I can immediately exercise that option, buy the Apple stock for a thousand dollars and then sell it at the market for a higher price, making a profit. Does that make sense, Luke? Yeah, it did. And I guess if I'm the guy who sold you that Apple option, I'm wincing every time the price goes up and up because I know you've got the right to buy that stock off me for a thousand bucks. And if it's trading for $2,000 in the market, well, it's going to cost me a ton of money to go and buy the stock so I can give it to you when you call in your option. Absolutely. As the seller of the option, you're hoping that the option never gets exercised. So you said that when you sell an option, your losses are unlimited. They are theoretically, but in practice, they're not. So when you sell a call option, for example, a lot of exchanges require you to cover it. So you're selling a covered call option where you have to own the stock that you are selling an option for. So that if somebody exercises that call option, you have that stock to give them. So like in the $1,000 Apple example, if I sell you the option to buy it later for $1,000, if I own the Apple stock myself, it's not going to bust me if you call in that option, but it is going to require me to give my shares to you when I could have sold them for a higher price. Yeah, exactly. The losses are real in the sense that you are missing out on the gains in the stock if you had held them. So it is worth saying, I think, that although options are really, really complicated, they can be part of a legitimate trading strategy. You can use them to reduce volatility, but it's really easy to screw this stuff up and experienced traders still can get it wrong quite easily and face significant losses. Yes, you're right, Luke. Options can be used for hedging, but they can also be used for gaining additional income from your stocks by selling call options. But I'd have to say, you really need to know what you're doing and you have to know the risks before you do this. Actually, Luke, you sent me a, an interesting story this morning about somebody who played around with options and lost more than he bargained for. The story involved a guy from Reddit with the username Irony Man. Yeah, he was doing something called a box spread, which is an option strategy where it doesn't matter if the stock goes up or down, you won't lose. He was so convinced of this strategy, he posted on Wall Street Bets, I have no money at risk. It literally cannot go tits up. <laughs> I guess you can guess what happened next. It did go tits up and he lost 2,000% of his investment. <laughs> so this is not too bit at all irony, man, but just to illustrate the dangers of options trading, even if you know what you're doing. Here be dragons. This is complicated stuff. Uh, you really have to put the research in and you really have to know what you're doing, particularly if you're creating uncovered positions. 
Yeah, personally, I've never bought or sold an option, and I don't think I ever will. My risk tolerance is just not that high. So today, Ab, we've covered four different alternative investments. Some of these are legitimate trading strategies, and in the right context, they can be beneficial, but you've really got to be aware of the risks and really understand what it is you're getting into. I think a general rule of thumb you can take is that if something allows you to get rich quickly, it probably allows you to get poor quickly as well. Yeah, you know, reward doesn't come without risk. And if you think something's risk-free, a bit like Irony Man, you might end up with egg on your face. So we'll say again that our preferred strategy of investing is to buy and hold. Invest in good companies and just hold for the long term. It's definitely easier to get rich slowly than try and get rich quick. Yes, I don't need a luxurious life, just a comfortable one. We're going to wrap up the episode, but we thought we'd give a quick shout out to a couple of our new subscribers. So we'd like to say a thank you for joining and a hello to Alan, Duncan, Pushvinder, of course, John, Stein, Sharon, Julie, Ben, Christopher, and Janet. Thanks for joining the Telescope Investing community. To all of our listeners, if you're finding these conversations fun or ideally learning something, then do please spread the word. Send a link to a friend or family member who you think might enjoy Albert and my little fireside chat every week. And please feel free to send us any emails on any topics that you would like us to cover and talk about. Well, I guess that's all for this week. Thanks for listening. If there's a future topic you'd like us to cover, you can message us at Twitter. I'm at Albert Telescope. And I'm at Luke Telescope. Or you can email us at feedback at telescopeinvesting.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, you can find more content at our website, telescopeinvesting.com, where you can leave us a comment or a review. And if this is your first time tuning in, perhaps consider subscribing to the website so you're the first to hear about new articles and episodes as they drop. Thanks, Luke. Thanks, Albert. This podcast is for general information and is not a recommendation to act. Please seek independent investment advice before entering into any financial transaction. Entering into a transaction that involves securities or derivatives puts your capital at risk. Luke and Albert are not regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority or the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, and the companies mentioned in this podcast may be held personally by us. We can't be held responsible or liable for any action taken by a listener, and as ever, past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. Thanks and happy investing.